Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Shameless, the podcast that this week was named in Apple's best of 2018, but also received its very first troll (laughs) message. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews. Nothing like the internet to keep you humble. No, that that was fun. Really enjoyed that. Coming up on today's show, how do we navigate the legal cornerstone of innocent until proven guilty now that the teacher's pet has achieved the impossible? Plus, the influencer weddings that are hurting our bank accounts and the rise and rise of 2018's most iconic celebrity, Ariana Grande. But first, Zara, how was your week? Week was not bad. It obviously flew because we're getting closer to Christmas. I chopped my hair off, which I thought was quite a landmark decision for my life because I never cut my hair. And I got to the hairdresser's chair and I told her what I was doing. And she said, yeah, everyone's doing this at the moment. I'm such a trendsetter. Okay. I I never expected (laughs) to be a trendsetter, but do not discount the strength that it takes to come into this chair and want all of this hair cut off. Have you seen what my hair has been like for the entire time I've known you? No, no, you. I know you have done it, but I'm saying I'm not, I never thought I was going to be individual by doing this, (laughs) but I just thought it takes a lot to want to get this much hair cut off. Don't discount the struggle. Am I weird for feeling like I influenced you a little bit? Well, I actually was looking back through our photos this morning and I realized in our um, in the photos that we use on our podcast, sort of little icon thing, yes. I am like a little light brunette long hair and I've cut my hair short and dyed it blonde. Are <laughs> you like, trying to be like me? Have we cloned ourselves by accident? I haven't done anything. You're just slowly morphing into me. Well, she's actually paying me to do this. <laughs> I also have an anti-recommendation this this week. Ooh, I mixing know. it up. Just to be extra negative. I <laughs> tried to listen to Anna Faris's podcast, Unqualified, and she did an interview with Sophia Bush. Right. Anyway, I'm not actually anti-recommending this podcast in particular, but the genre in its entirety, because I was quite excited to see Anna Faris and Sophia Bush in conversation together. As in like two celebrities having two a chat. Two great female celebrities as well, who stand for really brilliant things. Mm-hmm. And it was windy, it was long, and I thought, this is exactly my problem with celebrity podcasts, that Dax Shepard, I know you <gasps> really like that podcast, but I find them so egocentric, I find them so long. Oh my God, a dagger to my heart. I find that they don't get to the point. The celebrity interviewing a celebrity is the most pointless exercise. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Dax Shepard's interview with Mila Kunis, which I put in our recommendations newsletter. It's too long. He needs to get to the point faster. Mm. When he interviewed John Favreau, who was one of Obama's speechwriters, I was super excited. That was one of the first episodes of Dax that I had listened to. And I was very excited because John is very smart and I like Dax Shepard. Dax Shepard was interrupting him the entire time. And I was thinking, John is the expert here and also the person that you're interviewing. But when you've got a person interviewing that has so much ego, the conversation is unequal, I think. I think it's different to when a journalist interviews a celebrity, for sure. But I I think we need to distinguish 
interviews from in conversation. I feel like in conversation, it's, it's just two people having a chat rather than I'm the interviewer and you're just going to answer my questions. <laughs> I do like those conversations where maybe I do know a bit about the host and I do know a bit about the guest, but I feel like it's a nice, warm dynamic. I found I would love you to listen to the first half of this episode of Anna Faris's Unqualified with Sophia Bush because I was about 40 minutes in and they hadn't really talked about anything. They talked about college and talked about weird, like their interests in boys when they were younger, but there was nothing of worth or nothing meaty in that 40 minutes. And I thought, what have I done with this time? Okay. So I would be really interested in hearing people in our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community, to hear if you feel the same. I know a lot of people are fans of Dax Shepard, but I am well off the genre now. How was your week? <laughs> That's made me very sad. I love Dax Shepard's podcast a lot. Um, my week was so busy and fast paced. My recommendation, we're going to move away from reads and watches and listens, I guess, because we put that all in our newsletter. But I have banged on and on in this podcast about how shit my car is and how it's missing a hubcap. It hasn't Mm. had a service in years. It is just filthy and gross. I had one day this week where it was like three hours of sort my car life out. I cleaned it top to toe on the outside and the inside. I got my hubcap replaced. I got it serviced. And I'm not kidding, not an exaggeration. I feel like a new woman. Did I influence you? Yes. Ah. (laughs) I feel like my entire life feels better because I'm in my car semi-regularly. I don't drive huge distances, but I drive every single day. And it is an instant lift to my mood to get into that car and not have that weight of, oh, there's a fucking million, I don't know, wrappers in the back seat and drink bottles or whatever like there was so much shit in my car I could not believe it. It's like a clean bedroom. It absolutely is like clean space clean mind and I feel like my entire week this week has been dominated by car chat and driving chat because we also went to the TAC display on South Bank on Friday night together. In Melbourne we should say. Yeah which was all about uh, encouraging people, especially families, to drive safely this Christmas and arrive home safely. Yeah, that's so true, actually. you ha- Your whole week has been dominated by cars. Maybe it's no coincidence that you went to the exhibition on the same week that you decided to clean your car. Yeah, maybe I've just been thinking about driving. Become a real over. rev head. Yeah, no, that's no chance of that happening. I do drive a Holden Marina. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. And it's like a decade old. I We wanted to team up with TAC to go to that event and kind of collaborate with them. It's a cause really close to my heart because this week was the five-year anniversary of my sister's friend dying when mm. she was driving home from the country. So Brie was a beautiful person and Claire loved her and that happened five years ago this week. So I think it's really important that we all in December every single year and in the lead up to Christmas and New Year when we're all on the road and potentially drinking more or on our phones more. I think the phone one is a huge one for yeah. young people and tell, like the stories that you have like that are, that are so sad but it's so important every anniversary or however often we can talk about it mm. to talk about it to put a face on these kinds of absolute tragedies. Absolutely and it's been five years since Bree's passing but the ripple effect that has not only on her family but her friends, people she went to university with, it carries on and on and on for years. So I think it's a really poignant and important message that we all drive safely and we all encourage our family and friends to drive safely. And if you want to go into South Bank, you can actually go take a ribbon. It's really Mm. sweet. They've got tens of thousands of ribbons where Victorians have written messages of pledges for the Christmas season. You can take one home and put it on your tree. I know it's a lovely idea. We would encourage any of you guys to get down, but the first place we do want to start this week is obviously where everybody has been talking and that is the teacher's pet, Michelle. Oh my God. Mm. I was so excited on what day was it? Might have been Tuesday or Wednesday when it was announced that Chris Dawson, the central character of the Teacher's Pet podcast, has been arrested, extradited from Queensland back to New South Wales and charged with the murder of his former wife, Lynette Dawson. There was an air of almost disbelief when this kind of happened because the podcast had been so huge and had gone on for so long. And I guess for a lot of these true crime podcasts that we really do become quite obsessed with, there doesn't seem to be a result or justice at the end of it. So we're so used to hearing this story without justice at the end. And I think that's why I felt so many people or an overwhelming sense of shock around this as well. Yeah, and I feel very conflicting emotions at the same time Mm. because, as I just said, I was excited initially when I found out. Of course I was. For anyone who's listened to The Teacher's Pet, it just seems like this is such a stark miscarriage of justice, what's happened with Lynette Dawson's life and how she was forgotten and slipped through the cracks. 
at the same time, I'm juggling this idea that in Australia, we hold up as the cornerstone of all legal process that you are innocent until proven guilty. And although two separate coronial inquests found that he had probably murdered his wife, that's still not guilt. It's not. And it is also very hard in these kinds of things, because when something does sort of transcend pop culture and become like a pop culture phenomenon, when it is something so gruesome as a murder case, it is really important because excitement is probably the first emotion that people feel. But if we do go too far and we do take this too far, we actually can interrupt the entire and disrupt the entire justice process, which is very hard thing for us to grasp when we feel so involved in a case like this one. I read a great piece by Caroline Overington in The Australian this week about the case about Hedley Thomas going and deep diving the case. Did you read this one as well? Yeah, it was wonderful. I just wanted to read the last paragraph. Caroline Evington writes so beautifully and so differently to almost anybody else that I read online. She said, journalists, good newspapers can give a story time, space, attention, but it is to the courts that we turn for justice. At the same time, dedicating ourselves to two precious concepts. One, the presumption of innocence, which must be defended with all our might. And two, the power of journalism, which is not dead yet, not even close. I think that's a really beautiful summation of sort of where the journalist hands over the reins now and sort of where we hand over the reins too. Yeah, we really need to let go of this case now. As Hedley Thomas said in the episode that dropped late last week, that they can't really pursue it anymore. They're not going to be publishing some of the follow-up interviews that they had done with babysitters and things like that. We really need to leave this now to the justice system and see what happens. I feel quite sorry for the three daughters involved Mm. in this. So Sharon and Chanel were the daughters that Chris Dawson had with Lynette. And then Kristen, the daughter that Chris Dawson had with schoolgirl Joanne Curtis. Those three women were toddlers or babies when this all happened. Kristen wasn't even born yet, Mm. and yet they have become tabloid fodder. For example, Kristen was walking down the beach a few weeks ago and papped with a pram, just wearing a hoodie, and just like an average woman on the street. Now this story, which she has nothing to do with really – she had no influence on the circumstances. She had really no... She was a character on the periphery in the actual podcast itself. And now she's in the Daily Mail and her life is being opened up to the public. I just feel like that's so unfair. And yeah, Chris Dawson will eventually... He is paying for whatever has transpired. But those three girls are paying when they are definitely not guilty. They've got nothing to do with what happened to Lynette Dawson. It is definitely this idea that you are by default guilty of a parent's crime, whatever that might be, whether that's literal or metaphorical. I find that concept horrific. I wish desperately that these girls were anonymous. But then on the other hand, I kind of don't because when there are daughters who didn't grow up with their mother, suddenly you've got a woman who was stolen from her children. And that's a much more poignant, tragic story that sort of uh, forces us to push for justice a little more. I am really interested this week because Trace, the the podcast by ABC and Rachel Brown, they looked into the case of Maria James. If you haven't listened to that podcast, I'm not a huge true crime nut. I know we've said that on the podcast before, but I have listened to that podcast. Yeah, same here. And they reopened the case into Maria James. So it was a very good week for cold cases and for podcasts. But what I've been thinking is that while these cases in particular have been in very good hands of very good journalists, I wonder what happens now when young journalists or anyone off the streets thinks that they can do this too because this is a monumental responsibility for any journalist to take on. I know Rachel Brown wrote for The Good Weekend a couple of months ago that when she was looking into the Maria James case, she had nightmares, she wasn't sleeping, she was waking up in a sweat. Headley Thomas spent years on this case. They actually put their lives on hold for this, and I just hope that other cases don't fall into the wrong hands. They've got to be handled with such care, not only for the people at the heart of the case, but as we just said, the people on the periphery, that this affects the way so many people live. And when you put people on a platform that they don't necessarily want, it is a massive, massive risk. And thank God that Hedley Thomas is so talented and so nuanced in what he does, because he obviously won the Gold Walkley as well earlier this year for his work on The Teacher's Pet. I think the case of Lynette Dawson was in very capable hands when he took it on. Well, he had won Walkleys before, so he had proved himself as a journalist. I've also been thinking that when people sometimes consider the media the enemy, 
these are the cases to remember. I mean, the media doesn't do all good, but not much of it is bad. And it does speak to how much we should invest um, our time and our money into good journalism because this is the kind of thing that can come out of it. Absolutely. And I think when people do speak of the media in that kind of negative way, the media is not homogenous. We're not all one entity. We are an industry filled with many different people with many different biases or end goals or whatever. And I think Headley Thomas and investigative journalism is something that we probably don't have a lot of in Australia. And we really need to push media publications to invest in the things that are long burns and might take years to do, but will eventually not only be super popular and earn the Australian, I'm sure the Australian is absolutely licking their lips right now that they invested so heavily in this production but not to just put everything into clickbait journalism. And we don't always want the sugar rush. Sometimes it is worth the long game. But it is so expensive. It's so expensive. It's so expensive when you think about putting a journalist on a huge, relatively big salary uh, for years looking into one case. Like that is an absurd amount of money and it's very hard for them to do that. I do have a question for you because you are far more into the Teacher's Pet podcast than I was. I listened to the first half and then sort of trailed off. And that is... The idea that is justice such a thing when the prime of Chris Dawson's life, if he is guilty, was untouched? I just wonder when he will spend probably less years in jail than he did walking free. Is that even justice? I don't think it's perfect justice. Yeah. But I think it's absolutely a form important off. and crucial to anyone who loved Lynette Dawson to see something happen, to see someone punished for what they think happened to her. And maybe she did run off. We don't know yet. Maybe Chris Dawson isn't guilty. Maybe he is innocent. But I think no matter what, it doesn't matter if it happens a day before he dies or even after his death, finding answers seems so important to those who have lost someone in circumstances like this. No, definitely. I think the the thread that I want to sort of finish on here is this has all been very important work, whichever way it turns out, but it sort of doesn't undo the f- almost four decades of damage that negligence did in forgetting about this woman. Mm. I do have one final question for you now. Oh, I didn't realise we were doing this. (laughs) Do you think it's possible to have a fair case from here? Um, Well, I don't think there can be. I mean, we're not legal experts, but I don't think they can possibly have a jury. Mm. And judges are trained to be able to run these cases. I mean, there are a lot of high-profile cases that have been in the last you know, century that judges have been able to preside over. I think this is what they're trained for. So I desperately hope that they can. I'm not sure, though. What do you think? I think they can, and I think it might come as a bit of a shock to people listening to this who don't know, but the acquittal rate when it's a case without a jury is considerably higher Mm. than the acquittal rate when it's a trial with a jury. So it's definitely not a closed, done thing yet. Chris Dawson may well still walk free at the end of all this. He might. And um, it's up to us now, like we said, to sort of step back and let the, the process do its thing. Absolutely. It's called the bend and snap. Watch this. <gasps> I think I dropped something on the floor that I need to pick up. So you bend and snap. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. As always, we have five stories that you might have missed From the rough and tumble of the news cycle this week, Mish, you've got five for us. What have you got? I do. Number one, Jennifer Aniston goes braless on Elle cover shoot as she says science and miracles could help her have children and insists two marriages have been successful. Have in capital letters, of course, because that is from the Daily Mail. Right. What is this trying to tell me? Pretty sure the Daily Mail just wanted to create a story so they could put photos of Jennifer Aniston's erect nipples on their homepage. In fairness, she did pose for Elle like that. She did. I just find, I've, I think that's interesting, number one, that that was something that the stylist on that shoot chose to do because her nipples were very prominent in the main photos as well. Aren't nipples and going braless very in right now? They're very in. They're very in and they're quite perky. Is that okay for me to say? <laughs> the analysis of this cover is by, um, by you is quite astounding. Sorry. I also find it curious that she did talk about still wanting to potentially have children. For someone who has constantly gone on, and I agree with her, the way tabloid media has treated her and whether or not she's pregnant or what she's doing with her fertility, it's been pretty 
pretty atrocious. But now Jennifer Aniston is the one to bring up this topic and open it up again, which is interesting. She should be allowed to, though. She should be allowed to do that on her own terms without other people trying to pry all the time. Because that is a very natural thing to want to talk about, your future, what it might look like. It's just a pivot away from what she's done in the past. It's not really, though. She said that she doesn't like the prying tabloid eyes and people assuming that she's pregnant because she's got a bump. But she should be able to take control of that story. Mm, It'll be a pretty fantastic narrative if after all this she does end up being a mother or whatever because she clearly does want to be. I wonder if she'll go down the route of adoption. Yeah, I will be interested to see. Regardless, that was an L cover and there were probably a million more things that she spoke about in that piece. That is the one we just pull out, isn't it? Not yeah. just us, but generally everybody. And the nipples thing. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> Number two, Kevin Hart steps down as Oscars host following backlash to past homophobia. That's from Junkie. I did find this very interesting, this story. Kevin Hart can literally get in the bin. So Kevin Hart used to be quite derogatory in his stand-up comedy and his past sort of behaviour towards the LGBTIQ community. And he has apologised, he says, quite profusely in the past for these actions. There are a series of tweets from maybe 10 years ago and he has been asked by the Oscars to apologise for those tweets and that behaviour again in order to host this event. Yes, and he refused. He says, and he said in a statement, I have said all my apologies. I've said everything I need to say. I've done this. I don't understand why it keeps coming up. Was that the exact wording he used? Yeah. Because a lot of the captions that I read as well was like, get over it, be positive, everyone's trying to tear me down. Oh, the end was definitely like, let's be positive, which is a bit like women supporting women. (laughs) (laughs) You can't just throw that at the end of any apology or anytime you want. He did say, though, I've said all I need to say. I've apologised. I don't understand what more people want. However, I think if you are going to be that way for a long period of time and earn a lot of money off very offensive opinions, you might have to spend the rest of your career apologising. But the point is your career's not ruined. You're being asked to host the Oscars. If all you have to do is apologise, apologise. Yeah, now he's been dropped. Busy Phillips tweeted saying, hi, I am available. (laughs) So... I don't even know who Busy Phillips is. You've told me so so many times. No, but it's Busy Phillips funny because she's so American in terms of she hasn't really penetrated our radar down here that much, but she's kind of a Chrissy Teigen in America. Right. Well, I just don't like Kevin Hart, particularly after he cheated on his pregnant wife last year. I think he just comes across as a narcissistic fuckboy. I don't. (laughs) How's the uh, description? I just don't really rate him either, and I think... They could definitely, they have so many people to choose from for, for being a host. I think they won't have any issues. Yeah, someone less problematic, please. All right, number three. I have made up a headline. I don't know if this is a thing that we're allowed to keep doing. I think we are. Fuck it. We make our own rules. It appears the bachelor's Brooke Blurden has moved on from the smudgy bugler with an AFLW star. So we made that headline up. Well, obviously, it has smudgy bugler in it. <laughs> My mum, Trish, will be so stoked with this that this has just suddenly become a thing. You know how last week we joked that y- Yasmin Yarbrough's name should be Yasmin Yarbrough, even though it's Jasmine? Yes. Brooke Blurton's name should be Brooke Burton. Oh, my God, absolutely agree. <laughs> Don't you agree? Yes, I stumbled over that a little bit. Um, I am adamant that these two are together. So Kate McCarthy is a Brisbane player in the AFLW. If you go on to her Instagram and have a little bit of a stalk... It definitely appears like her and Brooke are an item. What are the clues that you've got? Well, look, I have to credit this to my friends, Emily, Maddie and Aisha, who did the sleuthing and put it in our group chat. And we're kind of going through all the pictures and I the captions. This. So they get the shout out for this headline this week. So that she's just liking her photos or what? No, like selfies together, kissing oh. each other on the cheek with a dog, like referring to each other as like my favorite person in the whole world. Oh, yeah. No, they're definitely they're getting together. Then. The kissing the cheek with the dog is like the most family portrait thing ever yeah they're together and they're a really cute couple like totally endorse it i think they look great together one thing i do want to say is brooke blurton has been papped with james from sophie monk season of the bachelor but you know when you're papped hanging out that you're just hanging out well women and men can't be friends so they actually can't they shouldn't be (laughs) it's biologically impossible some people do think that anyway next all right next number four priyanka chopra isn't a scammer she's just way more famous than mainstream america American media grasps. That is from Jezebel. So, so, oh my God. For two people who love the cut, mm. we were pretty stunned with an article that appeared on the cut this week. 
It was about Priyanka Chopra's wedding and it was, it looked like some kind of intended satire that I truly didn't understand. I didn't understand even the point she was trying to make. You know, when you read a poor satire and you're like, oh, I see what you're trying to do, but you haven't pulled it off. I didn't understand what she was trying to do. So a bit of context, Priyanka Chopra married a Jonas brother. I would love to pretend I know which Jonas brother is. Nick, there you go. I always think like Joe Jonas is the sad one that no one likes. Oh no, it's Kevin Jonas. No one likes. I didn't know there was a Kevin. Oh yeah. No one likes him. Sorry, Kevin. Okay. No, so, <laughs> so this writer wrote an entire think piece about how Priyanka Chopra has basically trapped a Jonas brother into marrying her. And because she's older, I think she might be 10 years older than Jeez. Nick, she's suddenly a scammer and an untrustworthy woman and basically someone who's open to as much hate and criticism as this writer wants to throw at her. For a left-leaning publication, which is often so clever and so well thought out. And toes the line, especially with satire. I was so shocked. I don't think this was satire. I read it. I don't think it was. I think it, I honestly think it intended to be. I just couldn't work out what was going on. You wrote in our Facebook group this week in the thread that we were talking about it, that maybe it felt almost self-published. And I thought that maybe was a a feasible explanation because I could not imagine how this went through the cut editors. It may have, but I just can't imagine how it did. It is in my mind, quite likely that a writer wrote this and instead of sending it through to the editor, which is the usual process, she literally just pressed publish and it appeared. I can't imagine them not having such firm processes that you would be able to do that. But anything can slip through the cracks. We've both worked in digital media and I think we can both imagine it happening. But not at a place like that. That's what my concern is. This headline anyway that we are sharing today is from Jezebel and wow, did Jezebel lay the boot in, which is funny because they are very strong competitors for that market in in America. Their writer, Prachi Gupta, went pretty hard and kind of justifiably so into the very steeped tradition of Indian weddings, how offensive and uh, misunderstood a lot of those claims were in the piece. I think this writer, Gupta, made a good point in that I don't think mainstream American media nor mainstream Australian media really understand the celebrity of Priyanka Chopra. Yeah, of course. I think whenever we discuss things like this, though, I think the article itself was pretty disgraceful and gross, and I think it was very culturally insensitive and woman-bashing in my mind. However, I want us all to remember that it is very likely that one or two people touched this story before it went up on the website. I don't want us to slam the cut in its entirety because the cut encompasses hundreds of people, freelance writers, editors, photographers, writers. I don't want us to say that because this one article went up, the cut in its entirety is disrespectful. It's likely that one or two or three people missed the mark. I don't think that people are, though. I think the cut is the brand and that's sort of what the brand has to wear. Well, I think that's what Jezebel's doing in this headline. Well, I don't understand. What are you going to do? Name the writer instead? I'd rather name the brand than the writer because, like you said, there was a chance that more than one person touched this and therefore it's only the writer that gets slammed. I did say in the Facebook group this week that regardless of what happens, my mind always does go to the writer that has to go to ground. I know that this was probably a culturally insensitive piece. It wasn't particularly feminist. It wasn't kind. It wasn't helpful. But that said... The kinds of threats that a writer like this will receive in this kind of scenario is overwhelming. And I don't think unless you're in the industry, you understand how terrifying the prospect of having the entire internet world turn on you is like. Yeah. I don't think people understand how terrifying that is. And I think we also need to be mindful in the future that sometimes things go wrong and even in ourselves, like we're terrified that we will one day say something that comes across as insensitive or stupid, stupid or misinformed or misguided. And yes, we can take people to task and criticize them or critique their work. But I think we do need to pull back when it crosses the line. I agree with that. My fifth story, Gwyneth Paltrow believes she is the reason yoga is popular and the internet is calling BS. That is from Metro. Gwyneth should not be allowed to do interviews at the moment. She shouldn't be allowed to speak to anyone with like a recording device anywhere near her mouth. She is such a cracker. So in case you missed this very now iconic quote, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow was, did, a, did a profile with the Wall Street Journal this week and she was telling a story of how she went to a yoga studio and the, the lady behind the reception at the yoga studio asked Gwyneth if Gwyneth had done yoga before. And Gwyneth said, forgive me if this turns out wrong, but I turned to my friend and I said, 
you have this job because I've done yoga before. Gwyneth. It's actually quite funny. It is very is it funny. I, I think so. She I mean, hasn't invented, yoga has been around for thousands of years. Yes, it definitely had. So it's, it originated in, uh, in India and a Harris survey that Yoga Journal commissioned in 2003, this is five years before Goop had even been created, found that between 15 million and 18 million people, all between 7% and 9% of the population were practicing yoga. So that's five years before Gwyneth, you know, made Goop a thing. I do have to say, Gwyneth comes across so terribly when she says things like this, but she has a point when it comes to her marketing strategies. And I do not think one part of her is standing up there saying, I made yoga a thing. I think she's saying, I put yoga on the mainstream map in a way that hasn't been done before. She's saying I made yoga white. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Mm. Which is the mainstream map because everything we do is saturated by whiteness. It's interesting. I spoke to a black activist and writer for a story that I wrote for Fairfax a few weeks ago, and she spoke exactly to this and how white people have co-opted yoga and pretended that it never existed before white people found it. And it's quite a spiritual and religious practice. Oh, it's very steeped in that. Yes. So I think we need to just be cautious when we think that we discovered yoga and it's a new we thing. We think we did. Like Gwyneth did. Get off your fucking high horse, I think, Gwyneth. I think that extends to so many things, though, that we co-opt for our own sort of game. Yeah. But I don't know. It's it's a pretty terrible quote, but it's also kind of funny. And I just, I just laughed. Yeah. I don't know if I laugh at Gwyneth or more just cringe every time she opens her mouth. A bit of both. Is that all you've got for us today? (laughs) That's all I've got. Mish, do you ever just feel like cleaning is the worst? (laughs) Yes. After a busy day of work, picking up a mop is the last thing that I want to do. But the busier I get, the more I feel like my home space is actually spinning out of control. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so happy this week's episode is sponsored by Urban U. Urban U is a website, one of the easiest websites I think I've ever used, where you can book a cleaner or a gardener in under 60 seconds and they'll arrive the next day. Yeah, that is exactly what we need, hey? A gardener or a cleaner that is qualified and vetted and will come straight to me. Am I correct in thinking they do bring their own supplies? Absolutely. Urban U has a satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not satisfied with the first job, they'll just clean it again. I think my favourite part is they'll even come on weekends, so if Saturday or Sunday are the only days you can actually do, it's no problem at all. Honestly, it is such a godsend. That's why it's so exciting that Urban U is offering shameless listeners a special discount. If you use the code SHAMELESS, 30 at the checkout, you'll receive $30 off your first clean. That is so good. That's Urban U Y O U. Thank you so much to Urban U for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Well, we probably don't need to tell you that it's officially wedding season. In the space of a week, Instagram sensation Pia Muhlenbeck got married in a stunning Byron Bay ceremony. She's followed by the likes of Carl Stefanovic and Jasmine Yabra, who tied the knot this weekend. Yes, I said Jasmine Zara, stop giggling who tied the knot this weekend in a four-day Mexican extravaganza. While that's all fine for the rich and famous, these Aussie celebs aren't alone in throwing lavish weddings. There's no denying it. The average wedding in Australia is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Zara, why do you think we're so willing to fork out massive money for a single day of our lives? Because we think we have to. We're all little sheep and we think that there's actually no other way. But I also wonder if we're even given the opportunity to do it another way mm-hmm. in that I've been, how old am I? 24. <laughs> I've, you forget when you get this old. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm 24. I have only been to a handful of weddings in my life. But if I hadn't, I don't think at this age I would know what a normal wedding looks like because of the ones we see online. Yeah, absolutely. I also think the pressure is so huge. I wonder how Pia Muhlenbeck even felt this week. Her wedding was on Tuesday. How she felt about putting that very first photo of her dress online. It is the most judgmental, I feel like, women will ever be of what another woman is wearing. The criticism and the feedback you get on your wedding dress when you're a person in the public eye is monumental. I still remember what people said about Beck Judd's wedding dress in 2011. Really? Yeah. 
Okay, I'm not going to repeat it. I was going to say, also, maybe you needed better hobbies as a 17-year-old, <laughs> but that's for another time. I agree with that. And I also remember more than anything else what somebody wears on their wedding day. And that is so an indictment on how much pressure and focus we put on that dress. For context, there's a little bit of um, sort of debate about how much the average wedding costs in Australia, but there is no denying that it's fucking expensive. So in 2017, Easy Weddings did a survey with over three and a half thousand people and found that their average cost was just over 31 grand. Where did Wonderland, an online bridal guide, puts that figure as high as 51 grand? This is an extraordinary amount of money. It is. I am a bit wary about bridal magazines putting out figures like this because I think we also need to remember that they have skin in the game. Of course. And if they tell people, oh, don't worry about it, the average wedding $60,000, it makes the readers of that bridal magazine go, okay, well, I'm fine to spend forty five. This is an affordable wedding. Which is exactly the point, yes. I think, because we're so gaslit by the entire industry that we don't know what's normal anymore. Yeah, it spurs the whole culture on and on and on, and it makes it just spin out to a crazy stratosphere where we're all spending just gazillions of dollars. House on deposits. House deposits, exactly right. And it all comes back to the wedding industrial complex that we see this one day of our lives as symbolic of who we are and who our families are. Mm. So it's an act of signaling that if I have this beautiful wedding and if I pull out all the stops, for example, I get the four-piece wedding band and I get the photo booth and I get a three-course meal for 150 guests, that says a lot about who I am and who my family is and who the family I'm marrying into is. And Seth Godin explained that on a recent podcast episode, and I think it's so brilliant looking at how much we have all been influenced and how much our savings accounts and credit cards are being stripped bare because of one day of our lives. It is such a personal branding exercise. I know we spoke last week when we spoke about narcissism on Instagram and how that's sort of given us a platform to curate our own personal brand. But a wedding does much the same thing. You're absolutely right. It's what do I stand for? What do I want to appear like on my wedding? Um, is it going to be a very formal affair? Is it going to be a very casual affair? All of that says a lot about the person you want people to think you are. I think it's also so performative. It is, completely. In the case of Pierre and Kane, their wedding is being made into a vlog, from what I've heard, for YouTube. So, yes, it's great that people have videographers and my secret hobby is going and watching wedding videos and lapping that up. I think it's so beautiful. However, we're using this one day to say so much about our whole identity. And in my mind, I already know of people that I've met or people that I've gone to school with or played netball with who wore a traditional dress, who wore a jumpsuit, who eloped, and what that says about who they are as a person. Well, I don't even know if it says a lot about them, but it says a lot about the person that they want people to think that they are. It reminds me a lot of the De Beers marketing campaign around diamonds Mm. more than a century ago. And the Atlantic wrote a great... uh, a piece about this a couple of years ago about how an ad campaign invented the diamond engagement. And it was a marketing campaign encouraging us to spend money on diamonds. Diamonds Mm. at that point weren't worth a lot, but because they sort of limited the supply, the demand was much was much bigger. And it was all the story of, well, this takes a billion years and it almost took infinity for this diamond to be created. So when you put that on someone's ring, it symbolizes eternity. Exactly. And so because of that and because of that marketing campaign, they made an entire union kind of worthless if it wasn't enclosed with a tiny circle of diamonds. Now diamonds are worth more just by default because of that marketing campaign and people see them as something worth something on an engagement. But it's important to remember that's how it started. And I think that so feeds into how we consider weddings and how we're being told that we should spend, so we do. Yeah. Before we go further in the conversation, I am curious, what do you see your future wedding like? Do you imagine yourself getting married at all? Yes. I do. And I think I was going to get to that in a second because I don't think just because we're having this conversation doesn't mean that we're not probably going to play into this ourselves. And I have no intention of bucking it because I think society has told women that there are a few life cycle events when she is most relevant, when she marries and when she pushes out a child. 
I have no issue in capitalizing on that. If that's when society tells us most, I'm most relevant, why aren't I going to chase that? Not capitalizing on that or not enjoying that time or not having a big wedding if that's what you want to do isn't going to single-handedly undo the patriarchy. So I don't feel any sense of responsibility to buck the trend to sort of save the world. Mm. What do you think? I'm the exact same. It's funny because as much as I realize what's happening and as much as I'm cognizant of the wedding industrial complex... I think I'll probably play into it. I understand how it doesn't make a lot of sense to spend all this money on a single day of our lives. But also, the more I think about it, the more I don't want to live my life constantly doing the physically responsible thing. I am... I think I'm good with money. I'm quite conservative when it comes to money. However, on my wedding day, I do want to feel amazing. She's and I do go wild. Wanna, no, I, I feel like I'll probably have a medium sized wedding, Same. but I won't buck the trend of a white dress. I will be wearing a white dress and I won't buck Fraud. the trend of so many of the other things that they do. I actually lap this shit up. My sister got engaged a few weeks ago now and as soon as that happened, it's like wedding fever hit us all. I think there's a couple of things at play here. Firstly, the idea of choice may be pointless because I don't know how much choice we actually have. The minute we get engaged, if we choose to do so, there is so much pressure and there's also so little choice. Weddings are almost clones of each other these days and you don't have a wealth of choice. It's not really often possible to do it extremely cheaply because people don't let you the minute you say it's my wedding i think the price goes up by about 300 percent the other thing i think that is worth noting is they think weddings have their worth i know a lot of people won't agree with me on that my sister and i debate this all the time but i think love is nice and it's also very (laughs) i'm I'm not a cold-hearted bitch (laughs) and i think it's really lovely getting insight into the dynamic of a relationship or why two people care about each other so much. I think I said this to you and a couple of girlfriends during the week, but I find weddings one of the only instances where perpetually shy couples or couples who don't flaunt their relationship all the time are really meaningful to each other in a very public way. And I think that is one of the the most beautiful things you can see and most valuable things you can see. People that you know and love talking about why they care about each other so much. I don't think that happens in any other place apart from the wedding. Absolutely. I think the one thing that I am getting annoyed about when it comes to weddings getting bigger and bigger is the expectation on the guests. For example, Carl and Jasmine's wedding being a four-day overseas thing. Yes, they're celebrities and yes, they're living their largest, most extravagant lives. But that's something I know of people back in Melbourne doing and the expectation that to celebrate someone else's love, you have to fork out hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to even be present. I am getting a little bit sick and tired of the expectation on me to go to hens holidays which stretch for a week instead of just a hens party or maybe one or two nights away i'm getting sick of the kitchen teas it being expected to bring a present to the engagement party and the wedding it's just like to go to a wedding you have to fork out hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to be there that's also what i find difficult because it does expect a lot of people who might not have a lot to give I, our fixation on a dress has also peaked, and I think that's because of social media. We have access to every dress worn by every woman, and I think the prevalence of couture culture has been exacerbated by Instagram. Instagram tells us that we're special and unique and with an individual brand, and I just don't know if that's the truth, but it's almost like our dresses need to reflect that. They need to be as individual as they possibly can, when in reality, how many variations of white dresses can you possibly have? Oh, that ideal has absolutely infiltrated the modern woman, feeling like I don't want to dress off the rack. I want a custom-made dress, which they cost. Some of the wedding dresses that I know that my friends are looking at or have bought cost over 10 grand. And if you put that into perspective, that is probably my entire year's worth of rent that I'm spending in my apartment right now. It is so fucked. But also you think about it and we put so much emphasis on this one day. There was an influencer wedding or a media personalities wedding in 2017 that you and I were quite obsessed with. We looked at the dress, we looked at the entire affair and thought this is an amazing wedding. It looks gorgeous. We don't even think they're together anymore. The marriage only lasted a few months from what we can tell. Well, yeah, if our Instagram sleuthing is is to be um, true. I agree. I also, there's this idea that I've been thinking about a lot recently about how Instagram has cultivated this ability for us 
for a moment to almost make a brand. And what I mean by that is I had a chat with stylist Lana Wilkinson a year or two ago around the Logies and she was styling a lot of famous actresses. And she knew in that conversation that styling these actresses wasn't just about putting a dress on them. It was making a moment that was going to put them on the map. I think to the Brownlow this year, and there was a wag by the name of Charlotte Ennels who is engaged to Jack Viney. And you look on her social media around the very carefully crafted social media strategy around her getting ready for that Brownlow. It was very clear about how a moment can make a brand. They made videos around her getting ready. She posted a lot on Instagram. I think she had just been signed by a management company a few months before. So it was obviously very carefully planned. And that's all power to them. But I think it's important for us to note that for a lot of well-known people, a wedding, a good dress, a couple of good photos to put online can make them a lot of money inadvertently. I am curious. I don't know if this is a really unfair question to ask you. What do you think is an appropriate amount for you to spend on a wedding? I actually don't think I can answer that because I don't know how much things cost. Mm. I don't know what the expectation is on how many people you have or the kind of music that you have. So I genuinely don't know. Well, this is the other dimension to it as well. I am already anxious about potentially asking people to put in. I think the tradition of the bride's family paying is completely gone now. It should be. There's so many different aspects of this where different families members put in or the bride and groom just pay for themselves. I have no idea how it even works anymore in 2018. And that's an awkward conversation to have around money. I mean, I know people that have had to sort of have been waiting for parents to have that conversation with them or them to have that conversation with their parents. They're not knowing which way it's going to go. I don't think there's a hard and fast way that weddings work now, which makes it awkward for everyone. Yeah. What about very traditional things like a a father of the bride giving her away to the groom? What do I think? Would you be on board with things like that or would you change that? Personally, I would change it. I would have both my parents walk me down the aisle. But I'm not going to blame anyone or uh, I'm not going to judge anyone for doing that because they're hardly the first person to do it. Yeah, and at the end of the day, a wedding's about so much more than just the bride and groom. I think a lot of brides potentially don't want to be spending tens of thousands of dollars on their wedding, but the family pressure on you to do that and to have this massive affair can be so significant that maybe these wedding days that we're seeing on Instagram aren't exactly how that bride planned it out in her head or how that groom planned it out. No, I think that's true because I don't think people know what to expect now because they are almost otherworldly weddings. I thought Andrew Brown wrote a really kind of scathing piece for The Guardian about weddings, which I didn't agree with necessarily, but I did think it was funny. He said the modern wedding with its stupendous cost and duration is really a celebration of the participants. Everyone pretends that for the day, the couple really are starring in their own film, following the conventions of modern films that means nothing really bad can happen to them, which is so true. I want to be the most famous person in my life for a day and I think everybody else does too. Yeah, and I want to star in my own perfect wedding video. Exactly, (laughs) which makes it so funny. Anyway, it is just an insane amount of pressure on people. I don't know how we do this without the hefty price tag. I don't know if it's possible to do it with a hefty price tag, but it is good for us to be wary of regardless. So I'm guessing you won't be having a four-day wedding in Mexico. I would like one if people want to pay for it for me. I'll start a GoFundMe. Get Zara to Mexico. Oh, imagine. (laughs) Matt, you're getting married if you haven't heard yet. (laughs) Fuck. Can you answer a few questions? Okay. Is your muffin buttered? What? Would you like us to assign someone to butter your muffin? My what? Is he bothering you? Jason, why are you such a skis? I'm just being friendly. (sighs) You were supposed to call me last night. If someone was to own the year, Ariana Grande would have won 2018. By saturating the news cycle with talk of her professional and private life, Grande became the focal point of her industry this year and its most famous star. Just this week, Billboard released the singer's speech upon taking home their Woman of the Year award, where she was frank. This year had been the best year of her career and the worst of her life. Grande's brand is stronger than almost anybody else in her celebrity orbit. Mish, what is it about Ariana Grande and 2018? She is woke, I think. <laughs> I hate that word, I hate that word too. but there's no other way to describe it. I think Taylor Swift was relevant in 2015, 2016, but she lost her relevancy because she wasn't keeping up with what young people want. And young people want someone who will speak what's on her mind and be the voice of a generation. Lena Dunham is not that voice of the generation like she wanted to be, but I feel like Ariana Grande potentially 
is. She's had a bit of a transformation, especially since breaking up with Big Sean, who, for anyone unaware, he's a musician who was actually accused of sexual assault for which he accepted a plea deal. And I think since she broke up with him, she's become very outspoken about feminism, about LGBTQI rights, about a whole host of things that make her seem very compassionate. Yeah, that's a really good point. I really enjoyed spending hours of my morning reading about Ariana Grande because she is obviously on my radar. I know the basic facts about her, But when you delve deep, she is one of the most likable people I think you'll find when you do go as deep as we probably both have in the last few days. I, I have, there's so much good stuff there. She, I think the overriding thought that I have after doing a lot of this research is that she expertly navigated pre-teenhood to global stardom, which nobody does well. And I think if anybody does get famous at 12, 13, all you have to do is look at how Ariana Grande did it she's now 25, in order to see how you can perfectly make that transformation without fault. And I think the answer is she did it very slowly. It was so gradual and so slow. Mm. It was interesting to go back through the archives and read about Ariana's history and different articles written about her in different years. I did come across one in 2014 written by a male journalist who described her as uh, child-friendly. (laughs) and how she was never really sexual and she was very PG-13 at a time when other musicians like Iggy Azalea, etc. Old mate Miley. Miley were all very out there and promiscuous in their branding. I use that word with little quote marks. Sound like a seventy-five-year-old woman. <laughs> all these women with their <laughs> vaginas out. Um, I think the optics of Ariana Grande changed from them, though. I think she really did pull away from that Disney-esque, Nickelodeon-esque branding, and the long high ponytail came in, but so did the short skirts and the high knee boots, the winged eyeliner. The optics of Ariana Grande are quite complicated in that she looks sexual, but she also looks quite teen-like. It is a funny combo. When I talk about her making a very gradual transition from pre-teenhood to global stardom, it is very physical in that her her... The visual of her hasn't changed that much. She's just dropped very certain elements. So the cat ears have gone. The winged eyeliner has started. The high boots have started, like you said. The skirts have got a little shorter. But the ponytail is still there. It's just straight. And I think you can actually see it physically, her grow up, without doing this massive rebrand. It's just been sort of like a rocket ship dropping certain parts at different times. rocket ship? I like that analogy. Thanks. Came off the top of my head. Everything. Even her lyrics. I was listening to an Ariana Grande play playlist on Spotify last week. No idea. I think the Thank You Next music video came out and I was like, I'm in an Ariana Grande mood. But I think everybody has and it's why we're having this conversation. Yeah. And I was listening to her lyrics and they are very, very sexual. If you go through her songs on her album, potentially the singles that didn't make it to the Billboard Top 100 or aren't played on mainstream radio all the time, a lot of the lyrics are very sexual. And I find that interesting because I think she's been able to use her sexuality as a vehicle for her celebrity when other women in the music industry, for example, like Taylor Swift, haven't been able to do that. Taylor Swift really needs to hold back that sexual side of herself because Mm. if she doesn't, she will be slut-shamed. And I love that Ariana Grande consistently calls out misogyny in the music industry and she always talks about slut-shaming. She wrote an essay on Twitter in 2015 and actually quoted Gloria Steinem and she used one of my favourite quotes of all time, which is, any woman who chooses to behave like a full human being should be warned that the armies of the status quo will treat her as something of a dirty joke. She will need her sisterhood. She is very political and I don't know if many people would think that off the top of their head. Whereas when you talk about someone like Jamila Jamil, I think one of the first things you think is very political. Ariana Grande, you've got the superstar and then the political underneath that. A couple of really notable pieces that I read about her over the years was one from the New York Times written by John Perilis and Joe Cascarelli. Um, It was in the wake of the Manchester bombings. And they said, unlike, say, Miley Cyrus, whose rebellion from Disney Machine was swift and in your face, Miss Grande was patient and coy in her maturation. They also went on to say Miss Grande's persona has been built with nonstop productivity. She's worked on three platinum albums between 2013 and 2017 when that article was published. And I think that's a really crucial point too. She has not stopped working. She's been pushing stuff out 
for a very long time, which speaks to that very sort of long timeline that she's been working to. The other thing that I read that I thought was really great was a piece on the spin-off by Kate Robinson, which was titled Last Year, obviously. You'll read the headline and realise it was clearly written last year. How is Ariana Grande, a perennial top 10 artist, still underrated? I don't think she's underrated anymore. But she wrote, so how did she do it? Through consistency, she's been grinding away on the super mega pop star periphery for the past four years. And I think she has for so long been on our periphery and on our radar, but only very recently become the the main character on our radar. I think some aspects of her celebrity being so bright at the moment as well is it feels like she hasn't deviated from what made her famous. Yeah. First of all, it's incredibly crystal clear that she is talented. Her voice is amazing. She's been likened to other singers like Mariah Carey. Second of all, she's the third most followed person on Instagram and she makes her family life very known. I think that's really important, even in places like Australia where we do have tall poppy syndrome and these stars rise and then we feel like they're too big for their boots all of a sudden we pull them back down. Someone like Ariana Grande consistently talks about her family, consistently puts her relationships with her family and how close she is on social media and makes that very known. And I think that all ties back into how much she feels like a human, especially after the Manchester bombing and how much she did to help those victims and every year she does a candlelight vigil for them and puts that up on her Twitter and up on her Instagram. I feel like not only do we feel sympathy for her, we respect her because she's talented and we don't feel like she's gotten ahead of herself or that she's a massive narcissist. It's really interesting you say that because Scooter Braun, who is the very famous talent manager or music manager who sort of discovered Justin Bieber, is also Ariana's uh, manager too. And he told MTV a year or so ago, she kind of has this warmth that makes you want to root for her and that what you want with an artist. The fact she has this ridiculous vocal range, it was incredible that she can do it live. She's so little and petite when she opens her mouth. It's unbelievable that it's coming from this little person. It's that twofold thing. I um, I read this brilliant piece in Adweek this week from a, a woman called Danny Calagera, who works in advertising in New York, who had this fascinating play-by-play on why Ariana's Thank You Next video was a mass market cultural event. And I think this kind of stuff is really interesting for us to look into too. So Calagero wrote, it began with the cultural relevance of Ariana Grande, her being the most famous star of 2018, but it didn't just rely on that. They then, she writes, built a content piece rooted in one of the most powerful forces in culture today, nostalgia. Then they build anticipation by dropping teasers. Um, the director of the music video, Hannah Lux Davis, began doing interviews about the music video before it was dropped. When the video dropped, they made sure consumers could be content creators too. A custom Snapchat filter and branded Instagram stickers were available the minute it dropped. Then they continued to create a long tail of conversation, releasing special features and bonus content. This is very very meticulous. And I think when you talk about a brand like Ariana Grande, of course, she is the crux of that brand, but there's a lot of stuff going on around it to make sure it has the longevity that they want. Mm, Agree. And I think, and again, it just reminds me that yes, this is all meticulous. And yes, she has absolutely risen through the charts and in relevancy this year, but she's the most depressed or in the lowest place she's ever been at the same time. And we put this in our newsletter a couple of weeks ago, relating back to Billie Eilish's interview with Vanity Fair, which looked at her in 2016 and then 2017 when her star rose significantly and how, yes, fame and fortune and attention is great. But Ariana Grande, I wonder if you could say to her, look, you can go back to two years ago when you were with Mac Miller and your life was probably a little bit more quiet than it is now before the Manchester bombing. Would you trade it all for what you've then gone through? Is it worth it? And I don't think she'd necessarily say that it is. So it's great for us to sit here and say she's so relevant and she's doing so well, but she's the one to say that she's in the lowest place of her entire life. Which I think is the most important thing she can possibly do out of almost anything in this billboard speech that she gave. It wasn't particularly long and she wasn't. it didn't look all that prepared prepared, but she just said, I would hate for somebody to look at me and look at this success and think that my life is perfect. I'm so low right now. And I think the best message that any famous person or successful person can spread is that that stuff doesn't necessarily make you happy. And what does is investing in the people around you. Mm. That's why it's good that she's so close with her family and friends, I think. Yeah, exactly. It sort of does. I think there is this outpouring of sympathy for Ariana, but also people think that there are people around her who can help her 
grow through it. Yeah, I'd love to know who the next person will be. Ariana Grande has absolutely dominated 2018, not only her private life, but her music as well. So to see who will rise in 2019 will be pretty interesting. It will be. Hey, I think that's all we have time for today. I think it is. If you guys want to support Shameless, if you love us and want to help us grow, please, 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 please put us on your Instagram story. Take a selfie or even just take a screenshot of you listening and pop it up there. That helps us every single week. Yeah, we really do love uh, going through those. It is kind of the highlight of, of any part of our week. If you also want to sort of join the conversation, you can join our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community. I repeat, Shameless Podcast Community <laughs> because we had a name change a couple of weeks ago and I would hate for that to get confusing you can also come and find us on Instagram feel free to do that too we are at shameless podcast is that right that is right I think it's right I don't know who remembers their own handle try that see how you go (laughs) thank you so much guys we really appreciate all your support and we will see you on Thursday for another in conversation episode we will be we'll be back in your ears in a couple of days Bye. bye Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.